0: Hi everyone, this is Stefan. Today I'm talking with Irina Rafliana. Irina is a science communication officer at the Indonesian Institute of Sciences, LIPI, and is currently a PhD student at the German Development Institute in Bonn, Germany. Irina's research is focused on disaster sociology, where she is examining the social construction of knowledge and technology in the implementation of a tsunami warning system in Indonesia, which is aided by German partners. Irina has extensive experience working in the Indonesian science system, but also internationally. In the podcast, we discuss disaster risk reduction in Indonesia around earthquakes and tsunamis and the challenges surrounding the implementation of the tsunami warning system. We also discuss the importance of taking a sociological and constructivist approach to understanding those challenges. And we discuss the history of the Indonesian Institute of Sciences, LIPI, its relation to other science systems and the challenges with communicating disaster risk reduction strategies with local communities throughout Indonesia. Thank you for listening to this episode. This is the Finding Sustainability Podcast. Thank you, Irina, for coming on. I appreciate it. Let's talk about disaster risk reduction, maybe some sociology, and your focus areas of your PhD, but let's hear a little bit about your background. So where you study, maybe first where you come from, where you grew up, and then where you studied and how you got to Germany.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Um, That could be a long story, but yeah, it's really nice to share with you again, uh, Stefan, I'm Irina from Indonesia. I work for the Indonesian Institute of Sciences. I'm brought up, uh, I brought up—I was brought up in an area in West Jawa, and then I now work in Jakarta. I took sociology as my master's study only because I've been involved in the um, science communication intervention in Indonesia and related with tsunami risk reduction. And that has been going on since uh, right after the tsunami, you know, the Indian Ocean tsunami, basically, 2004. And then I took sociology to really understand how everything is constructed from the social perspective and that helps a lot with understanding why interventions are working or why interventions are not working or even creating new problems Um, and I think that's helpful to sensitize all of these programs that are introduced by scientists or science institutions or even the government.
0: And now you, you're on a scholarship to do your PhD in Germany. And you recently were at the, we're sitting in Bonn at the moment. So this is, you're now affiliated with the German Development Institute, which is here in Bonn. And what is then the core focus of your PhD?
1: Um, well, I'm still picking up um, my curiosity and experiences from the tsunami warning system development um, so i uh, as you mentioned um, i received the ID scholarship award uh, and it helps helps me to then put uh perspectives on on the topic that i have been interested for so long um related with how technologies are built by different social settings from the political historical and cultural views sometimes tends to be overlooked when we're developing new ideas and innovation to help people but at the end um, we always ask ourselves why this didn't work Um, at the end uh, of my experiences uh, after the palo tsunami 2018 for example i came to even more realize that it's not about the technology problem it's really about our understanding from the social uh lenses mm-hmm. um so this research um allows me to do that so i'll be working with different german organizations that help co-construct the tsunami warning system in indonesia and then i will go back to indonesia and also interview different institutions at the national level and also um live with communities in Kolon progo that's the plan in south jawa um and they are facing the future tsunami risk in the future so and then take all of these three different multi sided angle or approach to then see how technology shaped these different societies and how these different people shape the technology.
0: I want to talk a little bit more about some details of your method, but maybe it would be useful first for folks to have a little bit of context about disasters in Indonesia and Yeah, maybe a little bit about maybe the 2004 tsunami and then how that created awareness about the issues of needing to have a warning system and needing to put in place procedures or or the reason for needing uh, technologies to be helpful. And yeah, maybe first a little bit of background and then I would be interested in why is this social construction aspect of it important? Why is that the interesting research question to ask in this case?
1: Yes, we'll know that Indonesia has different histories I mean like a wide range of histories of disasters in the past and it will continue uh, even rising I think along with the uh, urbanization development uh, and to take tsunami as one example uh, we've been always living with tsunamis in the past but whether or not we're taking those experiences and build our readiness, that's another thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the cultural lenses that we need to dig in and understand why, rather than judging that the people are never prepared. And that wouldn't be fair. So understanding that and understanding that we never even um, talked about tsunamis as a terminology before 2004 in Aceh, for example. So tsunami as a terminology is is non-indigenous. But we do have some terminologies for tsunami. For example, Smong in certain islands or ibuna in Aceh mainland or high waves in Ambon, um, so on and so forth. Um, But that does not necessarily translate into something that could happen again in the future. Based on that, I don't think that actually urges strong enough for the government to then develop a warning system for Indonesia to protect the people at the coast before 2004 and it was the reality that we don't have any warning system at that time. So, shortly after the 2004, um, many scientists in Indonesia realized that they need it, they don't have the instrumentation I think the closest uh, monitoring stations from Ajay at that moment is probably hundreds or thousands of kilometers away and that's not sufficient and it's not really dense enough. Um, so bringing that issue to the table and having also international um, attention. And the the importance of this, there's an international conference in Bonn on warning system in 2006 and also initiative from the government of Germany in 2005 even uh, to develop a project uh, for the Indian Ocean where there's an unwarning. Uh, Then this came into proliferation,
0: so to speak. Yeah, what is the general, who are the main actors involved there? I'm thinking about... Indonesia, it's very much dispersed, It's many islands, it's a very large country, and I would think it's very, to some extent, geographically decentralized, and it's also very culturally heterogeneous, it's very diverse, and ecologically as well as socially. And how does, when you look at a problem like this, who are the main government actors and... What is, the, what is this relationship between local communities which might have diverse understandings of and different cultures and different terminologies even versus having a top-down uh, system which, which is trying to influence how people behave and react in these disaster scenarios?
1: Well, of course, the main actor or the initiator would be in terms of technicalization of, of problems comes uh, from the bureaucrats and also from the scientists in trying to socially engineer people Mm. to overcome certain problems, and in this case, tsunami. Um, So the initiative comes from the government, from the, mm, at that time, PMG, the Agency for Meteorology and Geophysics, and now it added climatology within the function, and also the Indonesian Institute of Sciences, and also the Ministry of Research and Technology at that time. Um Also, some scientists from universities and also from research academics collaborating with other institutions and scientists from outside of Indonesia, of course. But as you may uh, imagine, the way uh, bureaucrats operate or also scientists operate is usually pragmatic to address this vast area of Indonesia, to address this high diversity of ethnic groups. They cannot, I mean, the bureaucrative system does not allow them to cater everything one by one. So the pragmatic approach would be having a really kind of standardized um, facility or service, which is the tsunami warning system or the Indonesian tsunami warning system. Uh, So that was the initial uh, idea. But of course, along the time, we know there's always this kind of interaction and frictions um, against these differences at the local level um, that was not being considered enough at the earliest stage of the development of the system. Um, And pragmatic speaking, when um, the government and science trying to understand what the problem is, um, the usual reason that they conclude is that the community is ignorant. They just don't want to be prepared. but uh, and that disturbs me and that really triggers this research questions inside.
0: Yeah, so you gave a nice overview of the various actors that are more broadly focused on this issue, and those seem to be, I mean one it's the government the different government agencies and then the science institutes, and they're really seeming the ones who are pushing the knowledge creation aspect of doing the science of it. And they're trying to then implement that, right? And in the space between there, you have a gap of translation, it seems like. That there's the science communication mechanisms, the way through which they try to to share the knowledge and the, the means, who is sharing the knowledge, how it's being shared, and what that knowledge is and where the knowledge comes from, creates this space where perceptions arise, creates this space where opinions and trust and legitimacy arise. And then you ha- this is where I would see then this aspect of construction. What are some of the questions you're interested in focusing on within that space?
1: Well, what, what are the, the cultural aspect, the um, political aspect behind the development of the system? What is the interest, the economic interest behind that? We tend to, you know, a bit hesitant to approach to, towards that venue um, because it seems to be a bit um, sensitive in a way. But if you don't brave yourself enough to address that, we don't get into the the core problem, and we can't be honest enough on 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 the issues that we're facing. Um, and that's also the issue in Indonesia, being straightforward, honest. This is the limitation of our system. We didn't put enough attention on the cultural aspect. If, if we're honest enough about that in our science communication approaches, and that science itself is facing so many limitations, they cannot answer all of these questions about when the next earthquake is going to happen. But then because of this different balance of power between the people and the scientists and also the bureaucrats and the scientists um assumed themselves that they have more knowledge than the people they always come into this kind of narratives in different media about beware of the next tsunami be ready so on and so forth and the people said yeah but um not feeding my family today is more riskier than uh doing this tsunami risk uh work for example so we're not allowing ourselves to, to read the people more and try to see their perspective and we tend to always think uh, we're going to come to a certain area rural area or a remote islands teach them and I'm going to be proud of ourselves once we go back because they did some simulations and um, exposed that uh, in in the media and then we're going to be happy about it. I'm, I'm very critical <laughs> in the sense because I myself was there yeah. and not being happy afterwards because I felt this perfume effect. Like you feel good after you do some intervention, you go back home, but then you return back in the next six months. Oh, why isn't there any you know, changes that we imagine. And I then came to realize the science system and the bureaucratic system does not allow a longitudinal process. Um, A long-term process to continuously uh, grow this together with the communities.
0: When I'm thinking about it from my my perspective, you're trying to somehow change people's behavior. You're trying to, and, and the role of how science is communicated, how knowledge is communicated and the ways through which it's communicated how it's done and the people who do it it seems really important for that and it seems that there are some misunderstandings about how that process actually works and we actually as scientists who study that process also i think have difficulties Uh, that that seems to be an emerging field how do we then uh, mitigate power relationships for example how do we find different types of tools and strategies for building trust and legitimacy while also sharing knowledge, while also valuing local perspectives and the local knowledge held by communities and not just the knowledge held by the more formal institutes um, or institutions like science or or different government institutes. And I think that's a nice overview of, of what you're focusing on. What are some of the methodologies that you're going to use? to try to understand this problem empirically?
1: Mm. It's always an interesting question because um, it makes me nervous uh, only because um, in terms of methodology, um, it would be nice if I have more experiences in doing ethnographic research. Unfortunately, I only have uh, very few experiences, including in my master's master thesis. So in this, in this project, uh, I'm going to use uh, institutional ethnography um, but the thing is, I'm also restricted with time and also sources to be there like for months uh, in a particular institution to dig in mm-hmm. their cultures and how they approach uh, problems and issues in the Global North context. Here in Germany, I visited several uh, institutions in Germany that co-create the warning system. Mm-hmm. So time does not allow me to, to go in depth. But the um, network that already built, built before I was here with certain institutions here in Germany helped. Um, So that opens the trust for for me to come in and then ask questions and then participate their seminars, um, join their lunches, um, walk around and have like informal discussion, critical discussions and intervene also my thoughts in the process. So that's part of my methodology. So basically it's ethnographic, um, but also interviews, observations. Um, And ethnographic is restricted only to one institution. I cannot do ethnographic in all of the 12 institutions that is involved in the warning system in Germany, of course. Uh, So I mix that with, uh, uh, you know, one or two hours interviews. And doing the interviews, I also um, uh, purposely uh, intervene my thoughts and also my arguments. And then we develop conversations. And based on that, uh, we gain new knowledge. Mm in itself, um, and I and by doing that, I, I gain new data. Um, that's probably not possible if I'm just doing question and answer. Um, so, and that needs a rapport building and uh, having trust from the um, leader of the institutions for me to do so and given the space to do so um, is something I'm really grateful of doing and maybe it's not the uh, luxury that all PhD students have.
0: You're gonna be interacting both on the German side and on the Indonesian side. Yes. And I'm wondering, I know you're you're still in the process of doing this, but what is your experience between the two systems, some of the differences in engaging with the a, a German Institute or a German Science Agency versus dealing with Indonesian ones? And is that process of building the trust between those actors uh, different? And uh, Do you have to take a different approach?
1: I think so, yes. But basically, um, because it's, it's a more science-to-science science kind, kind of institution, they have, like, a, a common norm. Uh, in terms of communication, it's not really like a rocket science to do. Um, but then, there is actually this trust issue um, that's beyond the norm. So, depend on the trust, uh, you can only go so much in-depth of the interview, and you can only have so much of the data. Uh, but what I want to know because what I want to dig in is the cultural political perspective of this I need to go down deep and I need to gain this trust So for the German side, for example, it's much easier because the, the, the culture is to be straightforward upfront. This is what I want. This is the procedure that I will do so on and so forth In Indonesia more or less there are also this kind of notion of um, Uh, how do you call it implicitness or or implicit notions that you have to read and it's going to be difficult for uh, non-Indonesian students to read the sense Um, but because I also have uh, already these relationship with most of the institutions beforehand I would expect that I have um, a bit better access to that um, and be open but also I cannot be... A political, I have also um, my own positionality my purpose is to at the end uh, contribute to the improvement of the system and therefore uh, I have to at the end share what I what I gain from those these both sides mm-hmm. um, so it's going to be a challenge I know uh, it's quite ambitious as well uh, I realize but let's see how it goes at the moment I think Uh, I'm I'm only grateful because of of all of these opportunities and spaces given and support given is really what I need.
0: Positionality is one thing that we talk about a lot on the podcast and being reflexive. And I think it generally is a positive, viewed as a positive move forward as researchers to, to realize that we are both, science actors somehow removed from the system but by doing the research itself by actually doing the interviews with the people and integrating you become part of the system as well and you become an in, an influence in that system and maybe that is an influence which you can't really control what the outcomes are and I'd be interested in if you think that that's generally Something that scientists reflect on, who are working on this type of project, that they are doing research about it, but by being, by by being in the system themselves, they are also creating this, uh, these constructed spaces of of having an opinion or perspective or a certain worldview, which is then influencing all the others who are in part of it
1: Yeah absolutely I think social construction as a methodology is also part of my research. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at how technology is socially constructed but I'm myself is involved uh, in the sense uh, and I think realize, realizing that is important mm-hmm. and sometimes uh, I probably tend to forget but I would like to always um, be aware if possible. Because, um, for example, in the conversation with with some German institution, at this point, sorry, at this point, I'm still at the first phase of my research, which is interviewing or observing the German science system and institution. But when I do this conversation and they have some opinions or some some assumptions, um, and I know that is not true, not correct, there's some struggle inside of yourself, right? And then you have to hold on Mm -hmm. to the exact correct moment, whether or not you can confront that and correct that. And in some cases I did that Uh, because then they realized, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know Indonesia is looking at from this perspective. Ah, now I know. Um, And in that sense, I think uh, probably I also contribute to some changes along the way. And in that sense, I'm not only a researcher, but I'm also an activist. And that's what uh, Marcus uh, George Marcus is also talking about uh, in terms of multi-sided um, ethnography, which I agree. Um, so this is kind of an exercise that that I'm excited to do, and I know there are consequences in that as well so but then only by doing a phd with a longitudinal research you can actually exercise yourself doing that because once i'm back in the bureaucratic system in the science system in indonesia i'm not sure
0: i'm wondering if that's this idea of being a scientist and an activist or having some sort of normative agenda which you would like to achieve is that something which has always been there but we just failed to reflect on that we had some inherent implicit agenda within our research and that we're now only reflecting on those processes, or is it something which is new? It, uh, it's probably some mix of both, depending on the background of the scientists where you're coming from. It's something we don't talk about too often. I think within sociology, it's a, it's a little bit more, yeah, because it takes a more constructivist view, it's a little bit more common. and But I think in other disciplines, it's less, it's less so. I think th- those are interesting conversations that we need to have more of I would be interested to know a little bit of the role of LIPI within the Indonesian science system. And it's, from my understanding, the big player uh, in Indonesian science. Can you maybe just give a small overview of what what they do and what they're funding? And,
1: and exercising constructivism, it's always interesting for me to talk about history. <laughs> so this is not going to be very brief, but... Um, so in the colonialization era, uh, in, the, in the Dutch colonialization um, era, I think, a hundred years back or even more, uh, there's this uh, botanical garden in Bogor uh, where all of these uh, research initiated by the so-called apostles of uh, European, um, European apostle coming into Indonesia and collecting specimens in in the biology discipline, um, but also for, for the purpose of uh, colonialization. Um, And during that time, uh, Indonesian technicians, I mean the the local technicians, were actually the first generation of scientists in Indonesia that was um, informally trained, so to speak. There is no school of um, biology for Indonesian students that can compete with um, international scholars and contribute papers on and so forth, they're doing technical work at that time. And so when the the German... um, Uh, Government at that that time retreat from Indonesia. These first generation of scientists continue their work, um, but with a different kind of history. So it's a different kind of trajectory comparing to the European scientists where they go through this enlightenment processes. They're critic against religion and then uprising this industrialization, but that's a different way from Indonesia. They're really picking scraps from what was remain and try to build that. But then come in the sukarno regime and also even the suharto regime in the government where they put science as bureaucrats so what i'm telling this is a reflection from what was written by andrew goss um, it's called uh, his book is called the Florocrats, um, which is basically also reflecting the history of lippi my institution and it's a very interesting book that probably we should together read Um, And then uh, during the Suharto regime, particularly, science is positioned more as serving the state rather than putting a solid ground as a foundation of policy making. And then you can now sense why Indonesia is so-and-so in making use of science in their development process. Or not, or they can actually do without science, so on and so forth. We need to understand that for many different kind of uh, actors and stakeholders outside of Indonesia before you come in, um, before we judge, because that's a huge challenge for for scientists in Indonesia as well, to be critical, to go against the the bureaucrative um, structures and say, no, this is not the way to do because this is what is proven wrong. But then how can you do that when the investment for science is not really adequate? It's not even 1% of the mm, the GDP, I mean the development uh, funding uh, that Indonesia has So how do we expect science can proliferate? It's not necessarily translate into um, the scarce number of critical scientists that we have in Indonesia, no um, There's always options for different uh, people to go within Indonesia, outside Indonesia to continue their study But then to go back again to the structure that's hugely problematic and the COVID situation really reflects that. Mm-hmm. So, um, and students going out from Indonesia sometimes take that as an excuse to ex- escape from the bureaucratic system. Yeah. They feel liberated, um, and in uh, and studying uh, in European countries, for example, uh, help that a lot in a way, in in one on one side. But returning back again to Indonesia and helping um, and um, and expecting that they can change the system, I think it's uh, a bit um too dramatic (laughs) to expect um and that's the the problem that we are facing at the moment so now Lippi, um uh having all of these different uh, research centers of course there are amazing amazing scientists working there um but then we have to see uh how they can actually voice this and influence um the 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 policy in indonesia if i speak Um, for disaster risk reduction issue which that's only what i know it's hardly there you can actually build or develop planning uh, without adequate risk assessment and you don't have adequate risk assessment because you don't invest much in risk analysis uh, in human resources to do the risk analysis in universities and research institutions to help the government not science For science. But the thing is what we're facing now is that um, to do science you are incentivized by acknowledgements in high-impact journal. How would you then allocate your time and be appreciated to work in science translation in ensuring that this is what is important to be implemented. So that's a huge thing in science communication. It's not only translating science but it's also relate with a structural issue that is brought from this um, important historical process in the
0: past struggling with the right incentives for scientists is something i think that's also present uh, much more globally for example the the push towards high impact factors is that something which indonesia is trying to look at other countries and and saying we should create those types of incentives in the system or where do you think where do the incentives within leap come from for, for individual scientists?
1: The incentive goes to um, this kind of um, ambition to reach high impact factors. That's the main, main, I think, incentive that's being advocated within LIPI. That's what I understand. Um, I knew a colleague, although the problem, of course, is much more complex than I can actually express, but I have a colleague that have this passion working with schools. Um, but as a consequence, he cannot fulfill this Requirements of you know um, delivering outputs to scientists in, in terms of papers, mm-hmm. and that um, hinders him from reaching uh, a, a certain uh, career level uh, within LIPPI. And at the end, he had to retire even earlier than expected. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a shame because he's doing an amazing job translating his work to to schools. I mean, yeah. that's Factical a practical work practical work and and that's not even that's not an easy stuff it's not a it's not something that you can easy i I can talk to children like anytime no try to talk to junior high school students and try to maintain their um, attention more than 15 minutes i bet it's not easy and in urban area where they are so used with this gadget and not used to interacting eye to eye with people and not to mention to the community that are not used to this eye level kind of communication, yeah. so how how do you do that? How do you make yourself equipped to to fill this gap? While well, it's definitely the 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 um, the role and responsibilities of scientists, but we don't we don't invest much in that. So that's that's part of my um, kind of inner normative direction that I would like to see more. i
0: I've. I've- i thinking a lot lately about path dependencies and what are some of the structural drivers which can either enable or hinder progress going forward. Changes we would like to make, and one I've been thinking about is language. And with a uh, with such a big country, Indonesia has many of its own languages. How is the role of language influencing that system? I mean, from I would say the the European or North American perspective, I mean, English is is. Is the language of science, um, but there's other huge science systems like the Indonesian one, which is perhaps publishing quite a bit in their own language, uh, which the rest of the world does not have access to, and it's a big, it's a big gap in, lo- in local contextual understanding for what's happening in those countries. And what is what is the what is the balance within the si- Indonesian science system between pushing for English types of research, which can go into international journals, versus local. Uh, national publications which are in Bahasa
1: yeah language English language is still a huge barrier uh, for Indonesian Um, and the way the education was introduced is um, quite dogmatic and it trickles down even to the current generation maybe it's much much better for my son learning English because he has access to internet and online games and he feel equal with his friends when he plays Uh, with someone from Germany or someone from the Netherlands that breaks the barrier but for the generation before that uh, learning language is so um, how do you call it so difficult because you have to understand the structure the grammars, so on and so it's not something fluidly you know given Mm -hmm. as part of of your upbringing Uh, for me it's a different case because I joined my father when he did his masters in Australia so in that sense um, I, I experience how language, English as a language, is introduced yeah. and embedded in me as a person. But it, that's that's not the case. When I came back from Australia, uh, I think at fifth or sixth years old, um, I was surprised because everybody has to memorize the structure. And that makes people afraid to speak. That's one. Um, the divide of a social structure between teachers and students. That also an additional thing. Mm -hmm. Um, The divide between parents and children have to be polite. You have to control yourself. You cannot be too naughty. Um, You have to be composed. Um, These kind of norms influence the way we we use language Mm -hmm. and translate that into action. And other thing that we tend to overlook is the um, the language of religion and the science within religion that plays even more deeper role than, you know, contemporary science, because it's, it's, it's a daily conversation. Uh, it's in the mosques, in the church, it's in the, um, Vihara or somewhere else, uh, it's embedded in your daily activities. Um, And scientists don't go too deep into that. So I remember, as an example, uh, when I went to Ache, like a few moments after the tsunami, we did the training for people uh, who were exposed by the tsunami uh, event, just to explain what happened, what is earthquake, what is tsunami, what is the earth plates. And the people said, oh, come on, (laughs) earth plate moving, we're here all the time, nothing is moving. Uh, and they they express this mock uh, not in front of the forum. They are very you know polite and and serious, not much of an eye contact. But but when when we have a break of this training, people mock at the back, and I listen to that. Uh, and then the scientist that I work with, I remember, it was so frustrated, and he was so full of sweat. And I can't explain clear enough this plate movement that created earthquake to these communities i can't i'm going to give up Mm -hmm. Uh, and he's so upset not because the community cannot understand him he just don't have the he doesn't feel that he's equipped Mm -hmm. to explain then we said okay let's try to go the other way around try to open some verses in quran because they are there about the uh that the mountain is actually moving like the skies Um, and that reflects how the earth is also moving. It's there in the Quran. Uh, And if we take that, uh, maybe there's a different kind of acceptance um, because that's also science. And then the next day, he did that and really received a whole different response. And I think that's also part of how scientists should uh, allocate themselves and invest. And unfortunately, that's... I don't think that's the case. Yet.
0: That's such a nice example of just needing to recognize multiple ways of knowing about something. And that if we're not meeting each other at those ways of knowing, we're, that's kind of these spaces where, yeah, we, we misunderstand each other, even though there is a common understanding can exist, it's possible, uh, but we don't perhaps recognize the means for which we can go about finding common ground. We can't found those spaces of connection, those boundary spaces. I know you've been involved recently with some work trying to understand the impact of the COVID-19 in Indonesia, and you were telling me the other day that you had a nice uh, sampling methodology using WhatsApp. Um, maybe you can say a few things about what you're trying to understand uh, about the pandemic uh, in Indonesia, and, and then maybe what, what you've done to try to sampling wise and, and empirically to try to get data about it. Yeah, that's
1: interesting. Maybe as a background, I should share a little bit first about the social science panel in disaster in Indonesia. It's a community of social scientists uh, and everybody who's interested in social science uh, for disaster risk reduction. Uh, and disaster response. Um, so this um, community actually gathered right after, um, I think, not not right after, but moments after the Palo Tsunami, knowing that um, the rehabilitation and reconstruction process are really not considering adequately the social aspect uh, of it. So when you're trying to move people away and you don't consider um, what that would uh, entail with the people, uh, how they were taken from the social roots, it's going to be a huge problem. And this is always the case with many different huge um, disasters in Indonesia in terms of relocation in other, other spots. So uh, this uh, community of scientists uh, in Indonesia then uh, get together shortly after we have the first announcement of the cases in Indonesia and worried so much that we think that we need to do something. And probably the best way to contribute is as what the, the, the community is aimed for, uh, doing a kind of a rapid response uh, to capture what's going on from the social lenses and then feed that back to the government for, for the national task force, task force for COVID-19. And what we did at that time, because we know, we understand that we cannot go to the field and interview people, then the only way to do, among other, is to use WhatsApp uh, and Google Form um to spread out surveys and to understand the people's perception on covid on lockdowns on covid on mobilization during the idol fitri or ramadan and after that um and also also other policies on um the, the resilience um to hang on during the lockdown and these in- information are so important For the government to then decide what they need to go how they need to go further and also the the open data policy as well are they really open to having their mobile phone accessed by the government for example um, and as part of the tracing process so on and so forth or how do we uh, elaborate this tracing process which we're already way behind um, comparing to German, like the first case you have this tracing, the sixth first case, you identify it, document it, and that became the first kind of foundation on your strategy. and that's not the case for Indonesia. So um, in the sense then we we choose to do um, this Google form and spread it out. but uh, the people were also uh, curious and also so up for this issue, of course at that time and we're so surprised that the first, um, a survey that we did uh, had 15,000 people responded in less than one week. It is, um, and it reflects how Indonesia is really using their mobile phone every day. It's like part of their um, um, physical structure, oh God, <laughs> so to speak, yeah. at the moment. Uh, so they responded quite well. Um, and it was also surprising that even more than 80 percent i think reaching almost 90 percent that people are really up to opening their uh data and information on the positive uh case of COVID, because by that they know where to avoid what to do and so on and so forth um and then we go to the next series of survey but of course probably it also ignites um inspiration for other institutions to also do the same way and there's You know, so many uh, surveys done by many different organizations. And at at some point, probably uh, people are already a little bit exhausted with that. So the number of people responded um, decreases and decreases. So the fourth uh, survey that we did uh, uh, related with the resilience only reached, well, I think more than 1,500 of uh, respondents. Uh, I'm not really sure. Uh, but, But that even as a number is still awesome.
0: What are some of the unique challenges facing Indonesia? In this pandemic if you have any preliminary results that you could share what were people's reactions what were what are the main challenges for such a such a large and diverse country
1: yeah of course it's so complex but i would i would say risk perception is one fundamental issue that is increasingly important in defining vulnerability uh, if we don't understand how p- community perceive risks, and then in, in the sense pandemic risk, uh, because of lack of knowledge or lack of access to information, for example, that would definitely stir uh, the situation up. Uh, that's one point, and we try to capture that. What we cannot access actually is another kind of uh, vulnerability that that is induced by um, the inconsistencies of, of uh, risk governance, transparency of data, Mm, and access to these data to make decisions and encouragement of having a adequate number of uh, tests. Um, so because of these inconsistencies, as you can, you can remember from our earlier conversation about this bureaucratization of, <laughs> of science or whatever problem that we're facing, um, I think uh, at, at the earliest stage, the government was so confident that they can go um, uh, almost without science um that they're working uh, through their intelligence system and so many um scientists were um were not involved at the earliest stage and that created a huge critics in indonesia but along the time probably already too late uh they now accommodate uh these um working groups of scientists from different uh disciplines as as part of the uh, national task force Mm -hmm. it should be It should make a whole lot of difference if we're thinking about this, even the earliest stage of it. And that's what is reflected here uh, in Germany. I mean, straightforward, Angela Merkel said, no, we are basing everything uh, on science. And that helps to shape people's perception. Because uh, in here, I observe when Angela Merkel said, uh, you have to be responsible with your own risk. And people accept that because they have this kind of mature sense of uh, risk perception and they take over the, the risk on their own responsibility and they're asked to do so. But in Indonesia, because you're, I, I think it's rather a, a top down approach where you think that, I mean, the government thought they could actually manage this. No, no, we can manage it. You just go ahead with your life and we're going to contain this. And that's definitely not the issue. At the end, they realized, no, this is, overwhelmingly impossible for us to do it by ourselves and everything is already too late and people have their own risk perception based on this kind of um intervention that the government did and it's everything is already too late and 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 now the the graph is still increasing and we're not even reaching our peak yet not mentioning um you know having a flat curve but then Without any uh, adequate uh, kind of consideration from the science, we now introduce the new normal uh, terminology, which for the people, new normal means normal. Yeah. What do you th- What do you expect? I mean normal means whatever you put new in front, it means that we can go back to our lives uh, and new normal is an English term. Uh, it's not an Indonesian term. and normal is normal is something everything is good. Now, how could you possibly uh, judge people having their car-free day <laughs> last Sunday, th- thousands of them on the street, and say, oh, they're so ignorant? Mm-hmm. No, it's it's actually a cause of your policy, I mean, the government's policy in a sense. It's a, a reciprocal. Of course, uh, it's also part of how community perceives risk, and of course, community should have been able to decide better from that. But then uh, we didn't help that.
0: It's fascinating to see how the different countries respond, of course. And I think each country has its own kind of unique way in which that process evolved. So one, seeing what data was available, what data was made transparent, how the public perceived that, who was the, who was the agency or the person or the viewed as legitimate conveyors of that knowledge. Mm-hmm. One thing you mentioned in there was interdisciplinarity. And that's also another Thing we talk about a lot on, on this podcast how much is is leapy structured or perhaps more specifically within the disaster risk reduction uh, working group which is i would say inherently a problem focused what is that value of interdisciplinary thinking within science system
1: uh it's an on and off kind of trajectory it's not by design yeah. to have a strong built-in transdisciplinary or interdisciplinary um, frame in scientific institutions in universities as well. Uh, it's an accepted new norm, and it 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 it, it is agreed that it is um, increasingly important because only by that we can understand complex issues and and, and problems such as disaster issues. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, as mentioned before. Uh, The uh, science funding is heavily relying on the government uh, funding structure and the government funding structure can say, no, this year we're not focusing in disaster, we're focusing on Papua case, for example, we're focusing on economic um, improvements, for example, and that will dictate how research uh, proposals uh, and plannings are going to be. that's one point uh, for disaster uh, issue it's on and off uh, in, in some years it, it's one of the priorities in Lippi in other years where there's no uh, significant disaster even happening then the, the, the funding um, decrease or even uh, relocated and not being the main focus anymore. but in person as you know agents person by person within Lippi mm, there are already growing experts uh, in this area that use this interdisciplinary um, even transdisciplinary perspective uh, one example is uh, uh, one of our senior researcher uh, he's internationally recognized professor Jan sopaheluakan uh, he established a so-called International Center for interdisciplinary and advanced research within LIPI that allows different deputies uh, and research centers to, to work together in this different um super important topic <laughs> that addressed directly to Indonesian problems or even this southeast Asia problem but then uh this program was um diminished it's dissolved um by the new um uh regime okay. <laughs> uh, of Lippy, and I uh, and and I think the, the current uh the current um institution leader uh is really brought from a disciplinary uh, kind of history. So we understand why he would like to emphasize more interdisciplinary work. So yeah, it's it's very dynamic.
0: Sounds very, sounds very much so. After you do your PhD, do you have an interest in going back to Indonesia and working again? And then if so, what would you like to focus on and what would you like to contribute back with your work?
1: I'm always excited to work with uh, young people um so as long as i can contribute in um increasing the number of uh good quality of uh, people working in in the area that i'm interested in i'm up for it um it could be uh going back to indonesia that's my, my, my the obligation is i have to return back to indonesia as a government officer uh, it could be either uh returning as a researcher or teach uh, but that that would be my next uh, next goal is to be more active involved in the development of human resources in Indonesia or even outside I don't really divide um, national boundaries in the sense uh, but that's super important because um, what I learned here right what, what I uh, experience here what I access here is something that probably is not uh, accessible for many other young people But once you see that they can access this, you can only be amazed on how huge differences that they can make. So that's probably one avenue that I'm... Really looking forward
0: to is there anything else you would like to say or to share um before we wrap up maybe where people can find you or connect with you
1: yeah i would be happy to uh connect to other people they can probably reach me t- to my uh, email address
0: we can link to it in the in the show notes yeah
1: I'd, I'd be happy to yeah and hopefully by interacting with the communities that that um also enjoy this podcast very much as much as i do um we can um Probably produce something exciting. Thank you, Irina. Likewise. Thank you also for the opportunity, Stefan.
0: Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed the conversations we're having, feel free to follow us on Twitter or to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. You can find us on most podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. You can also listen and find the show notes for each episode on our website, along with other projects related to the Environmental Social Science Network.